Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present journalist and author Greg Palliston, who summarizes his investigation, finding that 88 Georgia Republican operatives have filed challenges to block 364,000 voters from having their ballots counted. Pam Garrison and Gene Evansmore. West Virginia activists with the Poor People's Campaign, who talk about their recent protest action against Senators Mitch McConnell and Joe Manchin for their role in derailing voting rights legislation, and Zuleen Mayfield, chairperson of Chester Residents Concerned for Quality Living, who discusses her Pennsylvania community's fight to close down their local toxic waste to energy plant, the largest in the U.S. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. The recent release of Iraqi militia leader Qasim Musla, who was arrested on murder charges against an anti-corruption campaigner, was a reminder to the Iraqi public of just how weak their central government in Baghdad is. When Musla was arrested, his gun-waving supporters promptly occupied parts of the Green Zone where Iraq's central government is based. Rather than risk a bloody confrontation, the state released him. This comes as Iraq is preparing for elections in October and fear is growing that armed militia groups will have free reign to intimidate voters. The Economist magazine reports that 13 political factions are contesting the elections, with rival coalitions tilting toward Iran, the U.S., and Persian Gulf states. Fearful of violence by armed militants, many civil society groups are planning to boycott the election. Prominent Shia militias played a critical role in expelling extremist Islamic State forces from Iraq, who at one point controlled a third of the country. After ISIS was defeated, the militias remained mobilized and received large amounts of government funding. There's now talk of molding the Shia militias into a force similar to Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps whose primary loyalty is to the Islamic Republic's supreme religious leader, Ayatollah Khamenei. Agricultural economists across the U.S. have been tracking a major increase in farmland prices caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. In this new market, locals looking for their retirement property and out-of-staters looking for some peaceful country living or an easy investment compete with and often outbid a new generation of young farmers. As the coronavirus pandemic opened new opportunities for remote work arrangements, many urban dwellers have reconsidered city living. According to an April 2020 Harris poll, nearly 40% of U.S. adults living in cities say they would consider moving to rural areas. As a result, in these Times Magazine reports, rural housing markets around the country have witnessed a spike in demand. In parts of rural California, for example, housing prices have increased by an average of 25% since the start of the pandemic. Productive farm properties generate a substantial amount of tax revenue and income that purchases lots of goods and services from local businesses. 
but American Farmland Trust warns that taking land out of farm production and developing agricultural land into smaller lifestyle plots hurts the rural economy. Moreover, low-intensity rural development contributes to rising greenhouse gas emissions and global warming. From 2001 to 2016, over 7 million acres of farmland was lost to lifestyle low-density use, a pattern of development that continues to accelerate. On June 22nd, primary night in Buffalo, New York, India Walton, a member of the Buffalo chapter of Democratic Socialists of America, shocked the political establishment by defeating four-term mayor Byron Brown, a close ally of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Walton, a nurse organizer and director of a community land trust, ran on a platform advocating for tenant rights, affordable housing, and reforming the Buffalo Police Department a year after major protests against the murder of George Floyd. Walton, who is black, raised $150,000 in campaign funds and was supported by the New York Working Families Party, Democratic Socialists of America, and the Buffalo Teachers Federation. The incumbent mayor attempted to ignore Walton's campaign by refusing to debate her. Buffalo, whose population is over one-third black, has one of the highest poverty rates among U.S. mid-sized cities. With no Republican running against her, Walton is all but assured a victory in the fall election. Walton will be Buffalo's first woman mayor and the first socialist to run a major American city since 1960 when Frank Zeidler retired as Milwaukee's last socialist mayor. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Long before the 2020 presidential election and the January Senate runoff election that saw rare razor-thin victories for two Democratic Senate candidates, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, the state of Georgia has been ground zero for Republican Party efforts to enact voter suppression legislation targeting communities of color and young voters likely to vote for Democrats. Georgia's new voting restriction law SB 202, signed by Republican Governor Brian Kemp on March 25th, gives state-level officials the authority to replace county election boards, giving GOP partisans the power to disqualify voters in Democratic-leaning areas. The bill criminalizes anyone who offers food and water to voters waiting in line, requires IDs for absentee ballots, and limits the placement of ballot drop boxes. Greg Pallas, known for his investigative reports for The Guardian, Rolling Stone, and Democracy Now!, and author of several New York Times bestsellers, including The Best Democracy Money Can Buy, has been investigating the war over voting rights in Georgia for eight years. Your reporter spoke with Greg about his latest investigation, titled Exposed, New Threat to 364,000 Minority Georgia Voters by GOP Operatives, that's linked directly to Georgia's new voter suppression law. Altogether, these GOP operatives have challenged 364,000 voters, a third of a million, which is only possible under the new 
what I call anti-voting bill signed into law in Georgia in March. What happened was is they actually tried to challenge these voters, this third of a million voters, just before the Georgia U.S. Senate runoffs, which um, in in December they mounted this challenge, the January 5 runoff. But uh, two things. It was too close to the uh, election under federal law. But more important, Georgia law itself, according to the ACLU, which blocked them in December, could not did not allow one person to challenge literally tens of thousands of people. And re- remember that there's 88 of them. Uh, they go from challenging a few thousand to 30,000. Um, how do you know? You're supposed to verify this, have personal knowledge if you're going to if a voter challenges another voter, it's left over from the Jim Crow laws where, you know, Farmer White would say, don't let Joe Black vote. But he had to know Joe Black. But these people don't know anyone. Uh, and um, so the law didn't say, gee, you could just, you know, throw a list at the counties, some spreadsheet at the counties and say just to remove all these voters or don't count their votes. But it is now specifically permitted. I just was literally reading just before we got on air the brand new law. SB 202, and this is what I'll say, and here's a quote, there shall not be a limit on the number of persons whose qualifications may be challenged. Unlimited number of voters. So this, the new law specifically allows this kind of wild, massive challenge of voters. In fact, the list is so long that Reardon said, oh, I couldn't even afford to print it out. I had to send in the electronic spreadsheet. And her uh, buddy, the GOP chairman, added his 16,000 names on a thumb drive. So it's like uh, lynching by thumb drive of, your, of the uh, voters, overwhelmingly uh, African-American, by the way. So this is what is permitted under the new law. Now, the question is, will it survive a legal challenge? And I wish to note that while the, the Department of Justice, and I applaud them, sued Georgia over the new law on Friday, they did not take on some of the worst elements of law, including this new unlimited challenge. One, because I don't even think they knew what was going on. Even the ACLU was surprised that they had resurrected this because this was kind of like slipped into the law. Yeah, so the new law empowers this crazy mass challenge. Now, how did you happen to find out? As you said, the, the Justice Department may not even be aware of this important little game that's going on in Georgia that could deprive hundreds of thousands of people from their vote. But how, how did you come upon it? Well, like uh, you mentioned, I've been digging into Georgia. Well, I've been working, as you know, on, on vote suppression investigations for Guardian, Rolling Stone, BBC, et cetera, for 20 years. I've been focusing on Georgia for the last eight years because that is, as people have now discovered, and the nation now knows, this is ground zero for voter suppression because it's a blue state when people get to vote. But it's a red state when you stop the voting. So that's how the, the GOP, and again, I'm not partisan on this. I, I don't, whether Republicans or Democrats get elected, not my business. But I'd like to see the voters make that decision. So I'm used to their trickery. And I knew that once the ACLU had stopped them from those challenges, they were going to figure out a way around it. And so I, I did take it to the ACLU, and I even took it to the NAACP lawyers when I was down there. Uh, Gerald Griggs, a great uh, lawyer, works at the NAA. And uh, he said, you know, by the way, okay, they may have changed Georgia law, but they didn't change federal law, including the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, which makes these challenges a, uh, a federal crime. 
And he says, you know, you get arrested, that gets real, real. This could come down to some very uh, heavy-duty conflicts. Greg, what's the mechanism for judging whether or not these filings to contest or purge voters, as we've been talking about, goes through in any given county in Georgia? Here's the, the process. You're guilty until you prove yourself innocent. So what happens is these counties under the Georgia law are now required to send a um, a postcard to every challenge voters, no matter how cockamamie and how ridiculous and wild and, re, uh, and absurd the challenge is on whatever basis. By the way, I called many and spoke to many, so did our team, hundreds, in fact. And, and it's all bogus. There's not one fraudulent voter. Once you make the challenge, according to the new Georgia law, the county has to send a postcard to the voter, which the voter may never see or you know may think is junk mail. But if they see it, the voter has to go into the county registrar's office and have a hearing to prove they are who they are and live where they live. Now, the, as the ACLU pointed out, Rahul Garabadu, their uh, voting rights attorney in, in Georgia, said, look, you're talking about thousands of people crowding into these little offices to have a hearing to say who, that they are who they are, which is already horrible. They have to take days off work. You know, we are still in the middle of a pandemic. And so this could overturn the upcoming elections, reverse things. You know, uh, Raphael Warnock is up for re-election. I know he was just elected last year, but he had a, he's on a uh, short term. He faces re-election. And 300,000 voters is, is above his margin of victory. Joe Biden won the state by just 12,000 votes officially. And so, you know, you remove a third of a million voters, and that's a pretty heavy thumb on the scale. That was Greg Palast known for his investigative reports on voting rights for The Guardian, Rolling Stone, and Democracy Now! Find a link to Greg's latest reports by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. As expected, all 50 Senate Republicans voted on June 22nd to block debate on a Democratic-sponsored voting rights and government ethics bill known as the For the People Act. The legislation derailed by the GOP filibuster would set up national automatic voter registration, expand early voting, ensure more transparency in political donations, and limit partisan drawing of congressional districts or gerrymandering, among other provisions. The current effort to pass the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act has taken on new urgency after Republican-controlled state legislatures across the U.S., have worked to enact voter suppression legislation. According to the Brennan Center for Justice, 389 GOP voter suppression bills have been introduced in 48 states, 22 of which have become law in 14 states. In response to Kentucky Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin's role in opposing the voting rights bill and protecting the filibuster, more than 300 people participated in the Poor People's Campaign Moral March on Manchin and McConnell in Washington, D.C. on June 23rd. The group marched from the Supreme Court to the Hart Senate Office Building in an unsuccessful attempt to meet with Senators Manchin and McConnell. Twenty-three activists, including Poor People's Campaign co-chair Reverend William Barber and Reverend Jesse Jackson, were arrested during the action in a planned act of nonviolent civil disobedience. Your reporter spoke with Pamela Garrison and Jean Evansmore, 
West Virginia activists with a Poor People's Campaign, who talk about the protest action's goal to pressure the Senate to protect every American's right to vote. We hear first from Pam Garrison. We went to uh, gathered in Washington. Uh, we, ha- we listened to civil rights leaders, uh, church councils that uh, has represents uh, 30 to 40 million members, uh, move on organizations which represents mil- uh, millions, um, activists, and uh, we met there to bring attention and the severity and uh, of this issue, and um, so we marched two by two uh, to Manchin's office. Uh, we had uh, asked Manchin for a meeting with us or if he would meet with us. We were denied. So um, members of uh, West Virginia, Kentucky, and uh, some of the others, uh, we did civil disobedience. Uh, we blocked the road. Uh, the uh, police officers came. They weren't confrontational. But um, Reverend Barber and Reverend Jesse Jackson got arrested with us. They were with us so, to let people know and to let McConnell and Manchin know that the things that we're hearing, it, it's not what the people are, are wanting and that the filibuster is keeping meaningful legislation from being passed. And I wanted to ask uh, Eugene how you see the Republican Party's current effort to impose voter suppression laws and their link to the issues of poverty and racism, which is really a a core focus of the Poor People's Campaign. I think it's power, and I think it's gotten beyond power, and I think it's gotten to the point of fear, just plain fear. I think there are many people who are afraid that what they not necessarily specifically, but as a group have done to other people, it's going to come back to them. So therefore, they're scrambling to stop as much progress as they possibly can. I, I'm, I'm black. What is it? We are less than 4% in West Virginia. Lots of people in the United States don't quite yet understand that West Virginia is a state, and it has black people living in it. We are a very small minority. So the people that are being suppressed and will be suppressed by the laws are poor white people, mainly. It's like, come on, folks. There just doesn't seem to be much common sense or thinking going on. Hey, I wanted to ask you, uh, Pam, to talk about what you think of Joe Manchin's proposed compromise on the For the People Act. He, He made a list of items that some were in the For the People Act, some not. But it's a stripped-down version. It's, it's really what he hopes maybe down the line will be some kind of compromise that Republicans will support. What are your thoughts about that as, as, a, as a citizen of West Virginia and one of Joe Manchin's constituents? You know, I've thought about this a lot. And Jesus was tempted 40 days and 40 nights by the devil. And if he would have compromised, nations would have crumbled. You know, Joe Manchin right now has got our democracy in his hands. You know, there's some things in this world that you cannot compromise on. You know, you're talking about our democracy, our right to vote, our future. And if you have to have certain principles and something that you're willing to stand up for and fight for, 
and our Constitution and our democracy, to me, is the one thing that there is no compromise on, and it is in jeopardy right now, and it is in Joe Manchin's hands to protect it and to do something for the people and for his constituents. There is no compromise on certain things, and I don't think there's a compromise on this. Go ahead, Jean. Thank you. What I picked up is Mitch McConnell already said no to Joe's ideas. And what I've learned and many people have learned, when somebody tells you who they are, believe them. He was laughed at. And now he's claiming there was victory in bipartisanship. Really? Whatever happens, we are ready. We are not giving up. We are not quitting. That was Pamela Garrison and Jean Evansmore, West Virginia activists with the Poor People's Campaign. Learn more about the group's work to protect voting rights by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. so-called waste-to-energy plants, are the garbage industry's way of describing toxic incinerators that burn trash, leaving extremely toxic ash containing dioxin, mercury, arsenic, and more. The Coventa incinerator in Chester, Pennsylvania, is the largest one of its kind in the U.S. Chester is a low-income community near Philadelphia, with a population of 33,000, 72% of whom are African-American. The 2021 Walk for Our Grandchildren and Mother Earth started in Scranton, Pennsylvania on June 20th and concluded in Wilmington, Delaware on June 28th. Those on the walk called for climate justice and for President Biden to take more action addressing climate change. Along the way, the elders on the walk met with local people working to stop fossil fuel development projects like pipelines and liquefied natural gas export terminals as well as incinerators. One way to make trash incinerators obsolete is through implementation of a zero-waste program, which reduces waste through recycling, composting, and ending the production of single-use plastics that are then burned. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus, who participated in the walk, spoke with Zuline Mayfield, chairperson of Chester Residents Concerned for Quality Living, or CIRCLE. A lifelong Chester resident, She describes the impact of the incinerator on her community and their efforts to close it. In the conversation that follows, she refers to the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection as the Department of Environmental Pollution. They truck the trash in, so there are about 400 to 500 trucks that go in and out of that facility a day. These are the 18-wheeler trash trucks as well as the trash trucks that we're accustomed to seeing in our neighborhoods. So the impact that it has had on our neighborhood is that 38% of our children have asthma now. Um, We have a high infant mortality rate. We have high incidences of cancers. We have various respiratory illnesses and problems that the residents are suffering from as well as everyday ailments such as rashes, eye irritation, throat irritation, 
And these are assaults every single day that people deal with. You cannot sit outside. You cannot open up your windows because the smells just permeate throughout your household and linger. It, they took a, a neighborhood that was 80-something percent home ownership that is now down to around 41 percent because nobody wants to live there. You cannot sell the houses. You can't rent the houses. A lot of the houses have foundational damage because of the massive amount of trucks that roll through. So the impact has been severe. And we don't see coexisting with this incinerator. There is no coexisting. This facility is outdated. It's over 30 years old. So we are fighting to shut it down. And we are asking for everybody's help in this battle. The trash comes from, as far as New York, Philadelphia, Ohio. Trash comes from Puerto Rico, Ocean City, Maryland, New Jersey, a wide range of areas. They mass burn every day, roughly 3,500 tons of trash per day. Does it produce energy and who gets that? Do you get any of that? that? As a byproduct of what they do. Um, if, if they were in the energy business, it would be the most wasteful way of creating energy. They produce about 90 megawatts. That energy is not coming to Chester. Uh, it's sold over to New Jersey and it goes into their grid system. We have an absolute right to breathe clean air, have clean water and clean lands in the state of Pennsylvania. That is part of our, our, our constitution for the state. And any impediment to that is, is a challenge and, and a threat to our survival as human beings. Basically, you're trying to build support for closing it. Are you going through, like, it, would, would it be legislation? Any means necessary. This is a political fight. It is a scientific fight. It is a health fight. It's a moral battle. They know the pollutants such as cadmium, lead, arsenic, particulate matter. They know what's coming out of that facility, and they don't care. The state, the regulatory authorities, the EPA, the Department of Environmental Pollution, the local and county governments, the, the state governments, the facilities, and we know too, as residents, we have one source of air. Nobody has their own clean pipeline of air, nowhere. So right. we're building bridges, we're collaborating, we're trying to build political power because we are certainly determined to make sure that this life-taking industry is no longer operating. We're not sacrificial lambs. We are people. You know, they have an Endangered Species Act. I think that this country absolutely has to come up with an Endangered Humans Act for communities like Chester, that somebody has designated these people will be sacrificed for the good and the comfort of everybody else. And if we're concerned about the legacy we're leaving our children and grandchildren, these are the battles that must be won because they impact us all. That was Zuline Mayfield, chair of the group Chester Residents Concerned for Quality Living. Learn more about the group's fight to close down Chester's Covanta Waste to Energy plant by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been 
listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WPKN in Bridgeport, Connecticut, KYRS in Spokane, Washington, Progressive Voices Network nationwide, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. <laughs>